Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her intimidatingly brilliant new book, Law and Politics Under the Abbasids, an intellectual portrait of Al-Juwaini, Sohera Siddiqui, conducts a masterful analysis of how conditions of political change and fragmentation generate intellectual debates and fermentation on the often conflictual interaction of certainty, continuity, and community in Muslim thought and practice. Focused on the thought and career of the prominent 11th century Muslim scholar Al-Juwaini, Siddiqui examines the hermeneutical choices, operations, and conundrums that go into the negotiation of epistemic certainty in the realms of law and theology with the imperative of historical change and dynamism. The distinguishing hallmark of this book is the way it conducts a thoroughly interdisciplinary examination of early Muslim intellectual thought by putting Islamic law, theology and politics into a productive and rather profound conversation. The outcome is a study that combines philological prowess, analytical sophistication and astonishing lucidity, sure to spark important conversations in Islamic studies and beyond. This book deserves to be taught in wide-ranging undergraduate and graduate seminars as well. Here now is my conversation with Professor Sohera Siddiqui. Hello, Sohera. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much, Sohera, for being a part of the New Books Network and uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, such a pleasure uh, to read your uh, phenomenal uh, uh, book. Uh, there are so many things to talk about it, and it really talks to such multiple uh, questions and themes in Islamic studies and beyond. So really looking forward. Uh, to this uh, conversation. Um, we have a tradition, Sohera, on the New Books Network that our first question to our authors is always biographical. So I was wondering if we can begin by you sharing a bit uh, with our listeners uh, something about, about your journey, uh, how you became a scholar of Islam and how you got to write this uh, particular book. Okay. Uh, well, first, thank you for taking your, the, the time out to read the book. I know it requires quite a bit of commitment on your part and the part of others uh, who host the series. So in terms of my journey, I would probably classify myself as an accidental academic in the sense that I had no real intention to becoming an academic. When I started university, uh, I'm South Asian um, by way of background, and so I wanted to be a medical doctor. I enrolled in biology and chemistry classes and 
very quickly I found that I wasn't very intellectually interested in those classes, but I remained committed for at least a few years. And it wasn't until my second third year of university, which I uh, in which I made the shift to Near Eastern languages and civilizations. But I ran into an issue of language in which you had a three four year um, language requirement of Arabic and. I had the choice of either to spend six or seven years in, in undergrad, which you definitely don't want to do, or to go abroad and learn Arabic. And so I chose the latter. And it was in my kind of encounters abroad um, in Jordan, in Syria and Egypt, and um, in which I met a lot of different graduate students. And it was in that time that Islamic studies as a discipline, as a form of inquiry, became something of a serious possibility in my mind. And uh, all of the actual graduate students that I met, I basically applied to the programs of the students or of the graduate students that I was enjoying my conversations with. And I guess they say from there, the rest is history. Um, I went to the University of uh, California, Santa Barbara. And then uh, after that, I was fortunate enough to um, get a job. And so I've been at Georgetown Qatar for the past five and a half years. Uh, in terms of kind of this specific book, um, I would say I've always been interested in Islamic law. And I think that's because regardless of where I've traveled in the Muslim world um, or in Muslim communities living in the West, I've always seen the centrality of law and uh, the way in which law appears in the Muslim imagination and appears in Muslim practice has always been something that's quite fascinating to me. And the question that was always in the back of my mind is, how did the law come to take such a central form? Was it always historically conceptualized in such a way? And what was the relationship between law and all of the other disciplines in Islamic intellectual history? And those large questions are really what animated my intellectual journey. And eventually I found myself answering them through um, through the person who I wrote the book on, who's Abu Ma'ali al-Juwaini. Terrific. So let's perhaps begin with a slightly broad question, uh, Suhaira. If you could uh, perhaps uh, elaborate a bit for our listeners um, I mean, the book has so many different themes and so many different layers, but in, in general, if I could have you uh, encapsulate the sort of central theme and argument of uh, of the book, especially with reference to what I found to be sort of the three key terms that ran throughout the 10 chapters, uh, certainty, continuity, and community, sort of the three C's, if one might say. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the central theme that you pursue in this book, uh, and perhaps with some reference to these uh, key categories that anchor it? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great place to start. So uh, as I mentioned, the book is focused on the 11th century jurist and theologian Abu Ma'ali al-Juwaini, who died in 1085. And perhaps he's most famously known for actually being the teacher of Ghazali. And the reason I articulated the project in the way that I did, which I will get to in, in terms of these themes, um, was actually two realizations I came to in graduate school. Uh, the first was that these complex historical figures who write in multiple disciplines, usually when we start studying them in Islamic studies, uh, we tend to analyze them in our own disciplinary silos. So despite the fact that Juwaini may have written in four or five different genres, I pursue him simply as a legal scholar. And I realize that there has to be something bigger that's connecting um, these different texts of a scholar. And we should read these texts in conversation with one another as opposed to just um, in, as I said, in our disciplinary silos. So that was one realization I had in graduate school. Um, the other realization I had is that while we as scholars are constantly pushed to think about our positionality, our situatedness, our context, and the way that impacts our scholarship, 
we often don't do the same things for the individuals that we are thinking about and writing about. And so putting those two realizations together, what I set out to do in the book and, and in the project was to create what I call an intellectual portrait of Juwaini. I wanted to understand what was his social, intellectual and political context? How did this affect him? Um, and crucially, what is his intellectual project and what connects all of his books together? And it's in searching for that intellectual project that I came to the conclusion that he's really concerned fundamentally with two ideas. The first is certainty, uh, both theological and legal for the individual. Uh, and the second is continuity. And here it's the continuity of religion, but also the continuity, crucially, of the Muslim community. And so what I try to do is I read his key texts and try to understand how do these two desires of certainty and continuity complement one another at times? Um, how do they compete with one another? And what is the result of kind of this productive tension on the arguments that he makes uh, in, his, in his various texts? Now, the first uh, sort of two chapters or so of uh, the book go into great detail, introducing us to Al-Juwaini as a scholar and uh, into the political and intellectual context in which uh, he wrote. Um, so I, I know there is a lot happening in these two chapters, but if you could perhaps uh, uh, pick a few highlights of some key features of his uh, intellectual personality as a scholar and of the political intellectual context that uh, you deem to be most uh, significant to understanding his uh, thought and his broader uh, intellectual project? Yeah. Um, so if I was to kind of just give a summary of his his environment, I would say it was an incredibly diverse one. And what I tried to do in the first section of the book is really map out the intellectual milieu that he was um, inhabiting and what is the historical backdrop of all of the conversations that he's engaging with. And I do that um, by looking at the way in which Joani self-describes. So he describes himself as a Shafi Ashadi. And so I try to answer the question of what was the social and political intellectual strength of the Shafis and the Ashadis, both during his lifetime and shortly before? Um, and how can that intellectual context and the strength of the Shafi Ashadis, how does that have a bearing then on the work that he actually produces? Uh, so the first thing that I note is that the, the Ashadi influx into Nishapur began um, before his lifetime, actually, during the lifetime of his father and grandfather. And when they came into, into the city, they came in as a minority intellectual community. And as such, they formed intellectual alliances with the Shafis, who were already present in Nishapur. And while the Shafis had the patronage of certain prominent um, families, uh, they were not the recipients of political patronage. And so the Shafi Ashadi synthesis, while um, it had support socially, it did not necessarily have political support. Uh, the political support was really going to the Hanafis and the Mu'tazila. And this didn't change even when the Seljuks took over Nishapur in 1037. Uh, the Seljuks continued with their patronage of the Hanafis and the Mu'tazila. And that famous moment in which um, Juwaini leaves Nishapur was actually the result of this. So uh, one of the Seljuk sultans uh, who was favoring the Hanafis and the Mu'tazila um, ordered the arrest of Juwaini and three other prominent Shafis and Ashadis at the time. Uh, this was in 1054. And that was when Juwaini famously left Nishapur and went to the Hijaz for five years. Uh, he spent uh, time uh, lecturing, teaching in the Hijaz where he learned, where he earned the title of um, Imam al-Haramain, which is how he's famously known. 
And he returns five years later in 1059 at the behest of the famous Seljuk um, vizier Nizam al-Mulk. And it's in this later period of his life where he really kind of sees himself participating in political power. He assumes a position at the prestigious Nizamiya Madrasa. Um, this is also where he writes his most famous books and his most famous students um, are under his tutelage at this time period in his life. And what I argue is that the early formative years um, in which he wasn't necessarily part of the, the intellectual elite uh, to some extent, um, as well as the political shifts that happened in his own lifetime, uh, left a huge mark on his intellectual production and his intellectual project. And so aside from kind of the, the larger theological questions that I explore in the book, I want to understand, I want to kind of see how Duaney responds to political power. Um, how does he understand the nature of political power, especially as somebody who lived through so many different changes? How does he understand stability, continuity, and most importantly, how does he understand community? And so the historical social background um, really becomes important to then understand the types of positions he takes in his work. So the next, uh, uh, in the next chapter, you sort of provide the uh intellectual backdrop uh, to uh, Al-Jawaini's thought. And you especially talk about the epistemological or theological divisions between the Ash'aris and the Mu'tazilis. Um, if you could again perhaps uh, uh, pick a couple of key highlights in terms of these divisions that then become really important as the sort of intellectual backdrop to Al-Jawaini's thought. What were these epistemological divisions, the central ones, that are most uh, relevant and important to your concerns in this book. So there's a there's a there's a lot of different issues I think um, when it comes to the divisions between the Ashadis and the Mu'tazila, who are the kind of the two main theological groups in Nishapur. Um, but as you said, I'm going to focus on the epistemological ones because I find that those are the most important for the later political um, and legal discussions. And uh, so what I do is I try to focus basically on three main um, divisions between the Mu'tazila and the Ash'aris. The first is on the nature of human reason and legal responsibility. Um, the second is on the nature of knowledge and the possibility of epistemologically certain knowledge. And the third is on the role of revelation. And when we look at the Mu'tazila, uh, we see that for the Mu'tazila, legal responsibility is fundamentally tied to the individual's ability to reason correctly. And to the extent that the individual is able to reason correctly, they can arrive at the moral value of a specific, a specific action with a sense of um, that being objectively true. And because of that entire process of correct reasoning yielding objectively true knowledge, uh, the Mu'tazila argue that moral and legal conclusions that the individual arrives at are epistemically certain. And this is something that the Ash'aris compete or respond to in a variety of different ways. So for the Ash'aris, starting kind of at the most basic level, they affirm the centrality of human reason, but at the same time, they want to give primacy to revelation. And for them, legal responsibility is not introduced by human reason, it's introduced by revelation. And revelation really becomes the repository of all knowledge. Uh, they also subscribe to what I call scriptural universalism. So they argue that every action has a legal and moral ruling, but this legal and moral ruling has to be derived from the scripture. Um, and to the extent that the individual's reason is the way in which those rulings are being derived, 
the knowledge is not epistemically certain, but it's actually probable or speculative. And uh, despite the kind of speculative or probable nature of this knowledge, individuals are still bound to act upon it because that is the source of guidance. And so you have categories that both the Mu'tazila and the Ashadis accept. They accept the category of necessary knowledge, which is al daruri They accept the category of nadari knowledge, which is um, uh, speculative knowledge. But they disagree about what constitutes necessary knowledge and what constitutes probable knowledge. Um, the the Mu'tazila emphasize the scope of necessary knowledge, whereas the Ashadis are emphasizing the scope of probable or speculative knowledge. And it's really this um, backdrop uh, that Juwaini um, uh, is exposed to and he really enters into, and he has to answer the fundamental question then of what is knowledge and what is certain knowledge. And, and he has his own kind of take on these issues. So what was his contribution to this debate and how did his uh, uh, positions uh... Uh, uh, continue, but also departed uh, from previous Ash'ari positions, as you show in uh, in the next uh, chapter. So if you could perhaps continue this thread of thought by bringing in uh, Jawaini and his contributions and his departures from this uh, longer tradition. Yeah, sure. Um, so as I said, Jawaini was working within this distinction between uh, necessary and speculative knowledge. Um and what Juwaini tried to do is he tried to think of a way uh, in which you don't just have these simple two categories of knowledge and you recognize that individuals actually believe that they have knowledge in something, even though epistemically, um, from a theological perspective, uh, that might not be necessarily considered to be certain. And the way he does this is he argues that speculative knowledge or nadari can actually become daruri through two mechanisms. The first is exhaustive reasoning, um, and he kind of defines this as a, a reasoner arriving at the correct proof, which then entails the correct conclusion. And the second mechanism is through custom or repetition over a long period of time. So if I'm habituated to doing something over and over again, eventually I consider that knowledge necessary, even though at kind of the, the inception moment of that knowledge, right? I didn't necessarily consider that knowledge to be necessary. So oftentimes I use the example of driving a car, that when you first drive a car, you don't really know the rules. You're learning all sorts of things. You're an anxious driver. A couple of years go by and individuals are driving without even kind of thinking about it. And so there's, Joanie's kind of recognizing that there's a process by which um, a simple habit and repetition can actually change the nature of knowledge. And so what I argue is that Juwaini creates this realm of practically certain knowledge, right? It is knowledge that through practice or through reason has entered into the realm of the Ruri knowledge, right? Necessary knowledge, but it's not epistemically where it began. And while Juwaini has these moments in which he says all knowledge is necessary knowledge, uh, he will recognize that the pathways to knowledge are very different. So, for example, he has this really interesting um, section in his Burhan in which he lists out what the, what he calls the 10 different types of knowledge. And the first knowledge is kind of the Cartesian knowledge of the self. And the last type of knowledge is knowledge from revelation. And he ends that section by saying all of this knowledge is, is necessary, but the way in which you get to this knowledge is going to be very different. Um, and so this idea that speculative knowledge has the capacity uh, by kind of the agency of the individual to transform into necessary knowledge 
I argue it opens up a space between the dominant Ashadi and the Mu'tazili articulations at the time. And then what I try to do in the rest of the book is explore how this space for practically certain knowledge has then a ramification on his legal and political thought. Wonderful. Uh, all of your answers are ending at a place that serve as a great segue for the next question. Uh, so let's let's continue to uh, now interrogate, which is the next uh, segment of your book, which is the legal theory of uh, Jovani and how he engages with different uh, sources uh, of the law, like uh, Hadith, Ijma, Qiyas, etc. So one of the key themes that the theme, I guess, that ran through this section, this uh, segment of the book, was that you constantly show the intimacy of law and theology, and the way in which law and theology are always uh, in conversation with each other. Um, and that, of course, is the connection between this section and the previous section on epistemology. So, um, so to begin with a sort of a broad thematic question, what are these interconnections between law and theology that you draw out through your examination of al uh, legal theory? And then if you could perhaps uh, apply that, uh, that idea to a specific uh, case of uh, uh, how he approaches, uh, for example, hadith and how this intimacy of law and theology is reflected in the way that he examines the different categories in relation to to hadith. Yeah, um, this was uh, probably one of the hardest sections of the book to write because um, it's really trying to bring together the technical details of usul al-fiqh alongside some of the conclusions from epistemology in a way that's accessible. Um, So it, it, it was difficult, but it was also quite enjoyable. And one of the things that was really animating um, this this section of the book as I was writing it is that scholars of Islamic law have kind of continuously highlighted the ways in which law and theology are uh, intimately connected, especially when it comes to notions of epistemology. And what I kind of wanted to do is take that a step further and see how specifically does a scholar's epistemological conclusions have a real bearing on how they actually approach discussions within usul al-fiqh, right? So it's not just that, you know, where theology leaves us off when it comes to the premises of knowledge is where the um, the, the scholars of usul begin, but how, how do those conclusions actually fundamentally alter the way in which they're approaching the questions of usul al-fiqh? Um, and so what I try to do is I also put that into then conversation with Juwaini's quest for certainty, right? Which is what his epistemology is focused on. And I look at the discussions of mutawatir um, hadith, ijma, and qiyas, as you pointed out, to see where is the conversation of certainty and epistemology coming out, um, and and how do we uh, how how is Juwaini potentially um, contributing to to ongoing discussions that are happening within Shafi'i usul al fiqh. So starting with the, the the first two issues that he addresses, which are mutawatir hadith and ijma. I argue that these are two of probably the most central conversations in usul al-fiqh because they were accepted as sources of law that yield um, epistemically necessary knowledge, right? They give you certainty. So if there is a legal ruling that is the result of juristic consensus, if there is a legal ruling that is a result of a mutawat al-hadith, I can have certain knowledge in that. And because of the fact that these sources of knowledge yield certainty, for Juwaini, he wants to make sure that these sources of knowledge are, are basically 100% legitimate, right? That the foundations of these sources of knowledge, the proofs for them are airtight. And what he finds, if we look 
If we take the case of Ijma, for example, we look at that more closely. He argues that actually the proofs for Ijma and Hadith that are typically used by um, both Hanafi and Shafi'i scholars, he says, are actually weak. And he sets out to then provide his own rational proof for Ijma that he thinks establishes its legitimacy and endows its conclusions with certainty. Um, and so what he's doing, and I think it's important to emphasize, is he's not contesting ijma or mutawatir hadith as sources of law, but he's contesting the way that jurists talk about them. And he wants to articulate a way um, in which you can talk about mutawatir hadith and ijma that gives the individual a sense of these proofs are 100% legitimate and 100% certain. Um, and it really reflects, as, as I've said before, this, this quest for certainty that's animating his books. Uh, after I look at Ijma and Hadith, I then turn over to Qiyas, which is um, much more complicated. So Qiyas is the realm really of probability. It's the realm of uncertainty. And Qiyas was always central because of the idea of scriptural universalism, which I mentioned before, this idea that every action must have a legal ruling. So we have to have a source of law that allows us to continuously extend the law to new cases. Uh, but at the same time, this poses a bit of an issue for Joani. Here we see kind of the tension of certainty and continuity most clearly. So you have a source of law that's giving you epistemically probable rulings, but you need that source of law because it's also the only source of law that's really guaranteeing the continuity of the law. And so what I try to sketch out in these chapters is how Joani gives preference to continuity over certainty, but at the same time, um, tries to discuss Qiyas in a way um, in which he constructs hierarchies, right? So what type of Qiyas is going to give you a legal ruling that is more certain or, or more probable than another legal ruling? And it's this construction of hierarchy within Qiyas that kind of gives a tip of a hat um, to his quest for certainty, even though at this point he's definitely emphasizing uh, continuity um, a bit more. Um, the only other thing that, that I think is important important maybe to add to the conversation is a lot of the ways in which Joani has been read is his re his rearticulation of ijma and hadith and his discussions of qiyas are oftentimes read as a critique of the shafis that came before him and this is one of the reasons why his reception has been mixed um, by later usul al-fiqh scholars and i want to kind of take that a step further and say this is not simply him just critiquing shafis but it's really kind of this outworking of his intellectual project that if he's got these two major concerns, it's not it's not something that's just kind of at the back of his head. But we really see it um, coming out in the way that he's framing the entire conversation about these fundamental sources of law. Let's now shift our attention to uh, the last segment of the book, which focuses on the political thought of uh, Giovanni. And you uh, go into some very interesting detail about uh, the kind of uh, uh, sort of uh, political uh, uh, templates of leadership and ideal forms of uh, 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 sort of politics that he that he uh, elaborates in his text. Um, uh, before we get to the question, I just want to mention for the benefit of our listeners that uh, this uh, next chapter, which I believe is chapter nine, um, has a, a very succinct five to ten pages in which you. Uh, very nicely do an overview of Muslim political thought and its coverage in Islamic studies, which I think will work really nicely in multiple kinds of courses also. Uh, it's a very nice summary there. Uh, but to my question, so could you speak a bit about um, the sort of key features of his political thought? And one thing that is very striking and something you emphasize also 
is that in that room, he is very much uh, amenable to uh, uh, striking a more pragmatic posture in terms of the kind of uh, imam, the kind of ruler that he is able to, uh, that he's willing to uh, tolerate, and uh, the kind of concessions that he's able to uh, to make. And you connect that kind of a pragmatic posture to the larger epistemological assumptions that uh, uh, that ground his thought that you, of course, have uh, already uh, elaborated in the previous chapters. So I was wondering if you could give us uh, an introduction of sorts into his political thought and how it connects to his larger epistemology. Sure. Um, his political thought is really kind of near and dear to my heart because it was actually the first... Um, it was the first time I was really systematically reading Joaini was a reading of Layat al-Umam, which is um, his main text on political thought. And it's really what made me decide to do my entire dissertation on him. So despite the fact that it kind of comes at the end of the book, it really comes at the beginning of this entire project in many ways. And one of the things that drew me to Joaini's political thought, um, and for me, why it's, it's so important to study as a text, is... Um, Sunni political thought in Islamic studies is oftentimes characterized as simply being written to justify historical events after the death of the prophet um, or to justify kind of the rise of dynastic families and the fracturing of political power. And it's often characterized as being one of the least kind of innovative or interesting disciplines in Islamic intellectual history. And we really do see this in reflected in secondary literature in which not a lot of scholarship is really given to Islamic political thought. Um, but I found as I was reading Joani that he really forces us to challenge some of these um, uh, these assertions that, that are taking place. Uh, so if I was to kind of give a, you know, a one sentence overview or one question overview of the entire text, um, he's really asking the question of what happens if we don't have the ideal imam or the ideal khalifa? How, uh, how is order maintained in society? How do we understand power? And what happens to uh, to religion? And so, starting with this idea of um, the ideal imam, which I think is where all texts of Islamic political thought uh, begin, it's quite an unremarkable position that he takes. Right? He says the imam is going to be a free man of Qurayshi lineage, should be a mujtahid, should be pious, should be powerful, should be competent. Uh, but very quickly, he begins to ask: Is what happens if you don't find a person with these qualifications? And he argues two things. He says the first is that we're going to rank the qualities that we wanted in an imam on the basis of the challenges that are faced by society. So if we're at war, we want to get a imam who is a general or a statesman. And if we're facing kind of internal heresies, we want to get an imam who is a scholar. So the qualities get tied to what the community needs. So that's one of the first things that he says, if we don't find someone with all of the qualities. And the second thing he says is the minimum qualification that we really need for the imam of all the things that he lists is the competency to lead, right? This idea of kifaya. And he says that as long as you find someone that is competent to lead and that the people agree to, then this person would be considered a legitimate imam. And what he ends up doing is he really accepts um, a weak imam to some extent, right? That we can get rid of everything else as long as this person is competent. So it's quite a low bar. And it naturally leads an individual to question of what happens if you don't find somebody that's minimally competent to lead. And this is where the Ghayathi, right, the text really starts to get interesting. And he says, if you don't find someone that's minimally competent to lead, then you simply have the loss of the imam, right? There is no more Khalifa at that point. 
And as far as I know, up until this time, nobody really articulated uh, within the Ashadi Shafi world or even kind of beyond that, the question of the complete absence of the Khalifa um, and the question of what really happens when you don't have an imam. And so what I pursue kind of in the closing chapters um, through a reading of these, these uh, final uh, sections of the Ghayathi is um, how does he answer the question of what happens after and how do the fundamental assertions that he makes in his discussions on epistemology and law, how do they come full circle um, in his political thought? Now, one of the things that you also show in your analysis of his political thought is that, and that's the theme of the final chapter of the book, um, is that his political thought is actually connected to a certain understanding, or one might even say reorientation of how one understands the Sharia and its uh, interaction with the community. And you have some very interesting and um, uh, fascinating analysis in this regard of how his politics is connected to uh, a certain vision of the Sharia that takes into account, in fact, not only takes into account, but is very intimately uh, connected with the uh, the experience of the community and the lived practice of the community. Uh, talk a bit about that uh, thematic that you explore in the final uh, chapter. Sure. Um, so if I continue with where I kind of left off, um, when Juwaini signals the end of the Khalifa, this really raises that question of continuity most acutely, right? Um, and really what he's wanting to answer is what happens afterwards. And this is where you kind of see the question of the community, as you indicated, come up. So the first thing he says is that um, society, of course, continues, right? It's not as if everybody collapses and simply ceases to exist once um, the Khalifa goes. And he argues that power, instead of being housed in the Khalifa, is going to basically transfer to the Mujtahids, right, who are going to almost in some sense act as local leaders in their communities. Um, but he continues the thought experiment and he asks, what happens if these Mujtahids go? Then he says, then you have these lower ranking Muftis who will get the power. Then the question arises, what if these Muftis go? And so on and so forth, until he really thinks about what happens if the Qur'an goes and what happens if Hadith goes, what happens if all of the individuals and the traditional repositories of knowledge really disappear? What happens to the community then? What happens to individuals then? And this is participating in kind of a larger discussion of what is known as Futura Sharia, the end of the Sharia, the fatigue of the Sharia, that had taken place um, uh, even before him, right? So this, this idea that the Sharia can potentially end was not necessarily a novel one. Uh, what was novel was his assertion of the absence of the imam and also his response to when the Sharia actually does end. So Ashadis before Juwaini and continuing on even after Juwaini always signaled the end of the Sharia to be the death of the Mujtahids, right? Once the Mujtahids go, the Sharia is gone. And what you start to see in the Ghayathi is Juwaini um, pushes against this. He says, no, the death of the Sharia, the, the fatigue of the Sharia is not with the absence of the Mujtahids or even the Muftis or the Quran or Hadith, but really with the individual losing knowledge of the Sharia. And the idea that the death of the Sharia is being connected to the individual's loss of knowledge of the Sharia is where the epistemology returns. And the way it does that is he argues that certain elements of the Sharia because they become part of an individual's habitual practice, um, are essentially practically certain to an individual. And thus the Sharia continues on the basis of this practical certainty. 
So if we go all the way back to his epistemology, I mentioned that there's two ways to get to practical certainty. One is exhaustive reasoning, which is what he would say would be the realm of the scholars. And then one is simply just doing something over and over again. And so what we see at the end of the uh, of the Rayathi is a conversation on what are those elements of the Sharia that have become so habituated um, in the practice of everyday life that individuals will have practical certainty of them. And uh, so by way of example, he says people will remember how to pray, right? But people will not remember the specific prostration of forgetfulness within the prayer because that prostration does not happen as frequently as the regular ritual prayer happens. And so what he's trying to say is there's certain things we'll remember and there's certain things that we won't remember. And the Sharia is sustained on the basis of what is individually um, uh, and collectively remembered and practiced. And so we see that the conversation of certainty and continuity after kind of going through the, the world of epistemology and the world of usul al-fiqh, um, when it appears in his political thought, really has at the heart both the individual and the community. And then what I try to do is I try to say, what does this mean for how we think about the Sharia? And what is the Sharia? And I think scholars have long debated um, how do we really how do we really talk about the Sharia? Um, I think a lot of people will say it shouldn't just be translated as Islamic law, but it should be translated as God's law or we should talk about it as the rule of law or as positive law. And I suggest in the book um, uh, that we can think of it within the framework of what Robert Cover has called uh, a nomos or a normative universe. And what he means by that is a world of meaning in which right and wrong, lawful and unlawful are mediated um, and negotiated not by jurists, but by individuals within a community. Um, and we see this in Jawaini because for Jawaini, the Sharia is not just about legal norms articulated by mujtahids, but it's something that's really produced and sustained within a community. Um, and it's that community that provides it with its life force. And so what I suggest, maybe somewhat paradoxically and provocatively, is that Jawaini's conversation about the death of the Sharia actually forces us to think in a new way about the life of the Sharia today. Um, across diverse Muslim communities and the diverse practices uh, that people continue to embody. Great. So, Swera, as a final question uh, on this particular project, uh, you have already touched on this in your last answer, but I was wondering if you could just take a step back and uh, say a bit about what you see as the main intervention and uh, contribution of this project to the field of Islamic studies and perhaps religious studies more broadly, what would you want readers to take as the sort of major take-home points conceptually um, in terms of uh, the contribution and intervention of this book in Islamic studies and in religious studies? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think there's a couple things, and I think it goes back to what I said at the that the first or second question you asked me about just a broad overview of the project in which I said that there's um, a reading, uh, as we do, of scholars in very diverse fields. Uh, so scholars are writing, as I said, in law and politics and theology, but we then try to talk about them in, 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 in our disciplinary silos or through kind of one disciplinary lens. And so I think the first thing, the first methodological intervention that I'm trying to to make is that we have to read across disciplines and we can't simply just pick up the legal texts of one scholar 
and think that we really kind of understand what that law is without putting that into conversation with everything else that is happening um, in terms of the intellectual production. And I think the other intervention that, that I'm trying to make um, is also the question of intellectual history and social history, that when we are working on individuals, we have to place those individuals within their larger political and intellectual context, that just as our texts are produced um, in a specific kind of modern contemporary Western academic setting, we have to understand what was the setting in which the texts we are reading were produced and to what extent does that setting um, uh, have a bearing on, on, the, on, the, on the intellectual production that we're, we're then reading. I think then speaking a bit more specifically to the arguments of the book, um, I really want scholars to, to start thinking about how the various disciplines and specifically political thought, epistemology and law are deeply intertwined. I don't think Joani was unique in the ter- in the sense that um, he's putting epistemology, law, and political thought together. I actually think he's the norm. He might be unique in the sense that it's all framed around questions of certainty and continuity, but I think scholars before him and scholars after him um, are similarly really recognizing um, the ways in which conclusions from one discipline and ideas from one discipline translate and travel into other disciplines. And so if someone kind of reads the book and um, kind of finishes it, aside from feeling like they, they, they know more about Joanie than they ever wanted to know, I hope that scholars also in their own work start to think about ways in which they can maybe move beyond the texts and the time periods in which they are working to really, to really think horizontally about um, how these issues are emerging and how they're constructed. So as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, Suhera, could you share a bit with our listeners about uh, what's the next uh, project you're uh, working on? Yeah, so the next project, um, it's a bit surprising because I jump about a millennium and also geographical locations uh, to the colonial period in India. And I'm interested in looking at the ways in which Islamic law was transformed through the colonial encounter in a way that challenges the narrative of both rupture and continuity. And I try to do this by looking at three different sets of legal actors who I argue are all involved in the production of Islamic law in the colonial period. So the first group of actors are muftis that remained institutionally separated from kind of British institutions of law. Uh, The second group of actors are Muslim judges who actually worked intimately within the confines of the colonial project as high court judges. And the third group who I find um, uh, most interesting are the muftis who became lawyers and represented Muslims in cases involving Islamic law in colonial courtrooms. And I try to read their writings and their judicial decisions. And in doing so, I want to map out more carefully how exactly was Islamic law transformed? What were the varied responses of Muslim actors to juro colonization? Um, And I think perhaps most crucially, I want to understand what were the competing legal traditions and modes of reasoning that really emerged um, with these different legal actors. And to that extent, um, I think it would be interesting to also see how do these different modes of legal reasoning that emerged in the colonial period, to what extent might they serve as a precursor to some of the contemporary discussions about Islamic law today, um, to what extent may they be connected to kind of the, the, the South Asian Hanafi tradition that existed um, during the time of the Mughals. And so I seek to kind of look at the colonial project, but also look back and look forward to see 
how these um, these legal traditions and modes of legal reasoning are really connected in, in various ways. Law and Politics Under the Abbasids, an Intellectual Portrait of Al-Juwaini by Professor Sohera Siddiqui, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019. Uh, thank you so much, Sohera, for your time, uh, for this incredible book, uh, uh, for giving us so much to think about and wrestle with. And uh, it was a pleasure uh, to chat with you on the New Books Network. And I'm sure our listeners also really benefited uh, from uh, your thought and from this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you for your time. So this was my conversation with Professor Sohera Siddiqui about her wonderful new book, Law and Politics Under the Abbasids. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new book in Islamic studies.